today's read of water and the spirit ritual magic and initiation in the life of an african shaman written by melindoma Some. the epilogue the fearful return i am coming to get your son's help to speak to my son who lives in the wilderness I recognized Fiancu from his voice. When he was brought into my quarter by my father, I was not in the least ready to talk with him. I had not forgotten, but Fiancu was a tough, persistent man who plainly shared the tribal belief in natural inequality based on each man and woman's connection with secret medicine. As the saying goes, Sata Sarnata. Difference is better than resemblance. The wisdom of village life celebrates difference, not material inequality, but variations of depth in people's relationship with the other world. They see this difference as an opportunity for people in the tribe to benefit from each other's knowledge and to demonstrate their ability to share. Known in the village as one of those who had through intensive research, tapped into the secrets of Lobier, Fiancu had won respect and status as an elder, accorded him not just because he knew the workings of these Lobier, but because he never used their power against anyone. Fiancu's aggressiveness stemmed from the fact that he was probably the youngest councilman in village history. He was only in his early 50s, and he felt that he had to constantly prove himself. He was, I came to understand, an outstanding example of a man who had made it to the top in a culture where what you become is often the result of who and what your family is. Councilman Fiancu was the traditional version of the man from the slum become famous when he was growing up. His family was in ruins, partly because of bad leadership and partly because not one young male returned alive from initiation. How Fiancu had made it back, no one knew, for it is impossible for someone to hope for a successful initiation if he comes from an untidy, disorganized family. Fiancu had proven them wrong. He was a miracle. His return was the beginning of a new era in his compound, and he rebuilt his family from scratch. His seven wives gave birth to 39 children. He was grandfather to nearly twice that number, and great-grandfather to a dozen more. Thus, in traditional terms, Fiancu was successful. Not only did no deaths occur under his leadership, because crises were dealt with before they happened, but Fiancu was constantly testing new secret medicines. For me, however, he was still the man who had opposed my initiation and said I should be kicked out of the village, and I would never be able to forget what he had told my father and myself the day I returned from initiation. Several months had gone by since the ordeal of my passage into adulthood. Ever since my true return, I had been feeling an immense silence within me. It was a silence that I could not even with great effort penetrate 
The memory of my years of absence from the village had suspended itself, and I felt as if my mind had stopped functioning. Once crowded with millions of incessant thoughts, my head now felt as hollow as an empty stomach. Once in a while I would dream of being back in the seminary, but everyone in the dream, all the students and priests, would be naked and act as if we were at an initiation camp. Niangoli and I had become even closer. He was always with me. We went fishing and hunting together, and he showed me how to tap beehives and get their honey, and he taught me the many useful things that any Dagara knows. How to dig out wild rats, how to use a bow and arrow, how to whistle a message so as not to scare an animal one was hunting, how to weave a straw hat. He was my teacher and friend. In return, I told him about Europe, the the Europe I had found in books. I told him about wars, guns and machines, and about the white man. I even taught him a bit of French, the alphabet, and how to write his name. He was fascinated by the process that made language visible. One day, Niangoli told me of his intention to go to the Ivory Coast. This shocked me profoundly. Of all the people who had gone to initiation, I had thought Niangoli was the least attracted to modernity. But I knew too that he craved for adventure, not just the kind I had had, but one that would provide him with opportunities for material gratification. He believed that his spiritual strength would translate into luck in the wilderness of modernity so that he would be able to bring things home to make his life a little more comfortable. And besides, it was becoming fashionable that someone in every family be called a Bintu, a person who had successfully gone into the wilderness and come back from it without becoming a threat to the village. In fact, it felt to me as if the whole village was flirting with the city. Niangoli said he wanted to buy a bicycle and some clothing. He said he wished he knew how to write as well as I did because it seemed to be an initiation into something that was irresistibly creeping into our village. For him, it was good to have survived initiation. But the real survival was yet to be won. Initiation was only the beginning. Niangoli dreamed of seeing the city and getting a chance to seek some of the things there. He said he had been craving these things since he was very young and that even initiation had not affected, had not effaced his desire to have them. When he spoke this way, I felt weak, as if a huge world had fallen on my shoulders and defeat had followed me into my very roots. I wanted to argue, to explain that he shouldn't feel this way or want these things, but my debilitation was real. It was the result of feeling it was the result of a feeling of pessimism that had crept into my comfortable soul. Was I waking up from a good dream into a nightmare? As modernity crept into my village, everything I held dear in my heart was disappearing. But My friend had his mind made up, for he needed the very stuff I had run away from.
for the white wilderness, I began to comprehend that there were quite a few villagers who had already left for the city in search of goods for their families. The worst of it was that one of Fiansu's first sons had gone to the city. It angered me, for a man as conservative as Fiansu to allow his own son to taste the modern world while he argued that, as a man who had dwelt in it, I was a danger to the village was not fair. There was something contradictory in the way he acted around me. I thought that perhaps at bottom he was either uncomfortable with my literacy or jealous of my father, a non-councilman, for having such a son. One morning, Fiansu came to seek my help in writing a letter to his son in the city. He had heard that someone in the village was going there and could deliver it. A good villager, he entered my room without knocking. He sat down, pulled out a box of tobacco, and poured some into his mouth. I want to send talk to my son in the wilderness. You should know him since you live there too, he said after a brief greeting. The wilderness is big. Is your son going to school there? I ventured. I had said the word school in French. What is school? School is where you get initiated into the white man's way of knowing, I explained. Fiancu thought about this, then ordered, Get your things and draw what I am going to tell you to send to him. He growled, spat some dark juice out of his mouth and began, Tell him it's been too long since I last saw him and that I would like him to come home for a cleansing ceremony. Tell him he should be prepared when he comes home to buy a sheep and several hens. Tell him to, and make sure you say this right, tell him, but I'm not sure I should say this. Well, tell him anyway that his wife has been found and that he should come home to get her before somebody else wants her. Wait, why, what is the problem? Speaking with your hand is not like speaking with your mouth. I explained. The hand speaks slower because it must make sure it guides the stick to say things right. If you speak too fast, my memory will not be able to retain everything you say. Without listening, he continued, say all this first and then tell him I will expect him at home two and a half muffin days from today. Kids in the wilderness are impossible to understand. You have to repeat things over and over before they hear you. They look like somebody has hit them in the belly so that their bellies do not work anymore except when food comes into them. And this wilderness must be a hell of an oblivion. Why do they take so long to send words to their parents? Do you want me to say all this too? I knew he did not, but I wanted to make him discreetly aware of the fact that it was impossible for me to write and listen at the same time. Have you said everything already? No. Don't say anything until I ask you to. When we finished, I folded the letter and put it into the envelope. Your son must have an address or something, I said. What's an address? It's what helps you find somebody in the wilderness. My son does not need an address. He is a person. Anybody can find him. All right. So what's his name? Just say Fiancu's son. That's what they call him here, and that's what they should call him there, because that's who he is. I wrote Fiancu's son on the envelope and gave it to him. He went out and thanked my father. Niangoli's departure depressed me. 
My sense of loss equaled the eagerness I had felt to be with him. For a while, I didn't know where to go or what to do, so I stayed home and tried to keep busy. Wasting no time, Mother had already made plans for me involving the daughter of a distant relative. I had never met her, but her existence was not less real because of that. Although I had mixed feelings about arranged marriages, I was not totally opposed to the idea. After all, I wanted to be like everyone else. One night, my father woke me up. I was used to being pulled out of sleep before dawn since my return from initiation, for it was customary to get up at a wee hour to perform ceremonies or to discuss serious matters. He said he had come to speak with me about something that had come up at a council meeting concerning me. My first reaction was embarrassment. What had I done wrong now? Father explained. I don't quite know how to tell you this because I don't want to make a mistake in the way I say it, but do you remember what the chief said about you and your sudden return? I don't remember much of that meeting except that Fiancu made me very ill at ease. The chief said that he had found out through divination that you are supposed to be our mouth. Do you remember this? Not really, but it sounds like something the chief would say. Well, he said it again the other day. He did? Yes. So what does that mean? It means they want you to return to the white man's realm. understood. The memory of my experience in the seminary burst onto the screen of my mind as if it were a movie. Then my brain fell into my stomach, leaving my mind empty of thoughts. At that moment, I felt fatigue overcome me. I could neither object nor agree. In a flash, I experienced the futility of all that had preceded this night of all my efforts to escape from the influences of the white world. For a moment, I felt the old rage rising within me, but I controlled myself, drawing from resources I did not know I had. I simply asked, What do they mean? Am I not one of the members of this village? Of course, everyone knows that, but things are happening fast. What things are happening fast? What have they to do with me? As an initiate, the council thinks you could be more useful to us being away from here. This sounds like the words of Yansu. He is still trying to figure out a way to get rid of me, even after everything that has happened. No, it's not him. The chief said that you are the way that the hyena and the goat can learn to walk together because you know both the ways of the Dagara and the ways of the whites. All I know is reading and writing and the terror of the white man's world. I just want to be left alone. I understand. But let me tell you this. When the white man first came into this village, he cost me a wife and four children. They are all buried out there next to the big baobab tree. 
so I understand what you mean. Your staying here would mean my not losing you. And believe me, I am tired of losing my children to the white man. But you see, the council does not view things the same way. The elders see in you a person capable of taming the white man because you know something that he does not know. The medicine of an initiated man and because you know what he knows as well. The white man needs to know who we really are and he needs to be told by someone who speaks his language and ours. Go, tell him. I can't, I said instinctively. How could I? No one in good alignment with his higher self would contemplate such a venture. And where was I supposed to go? Back to the Jesuit school? To the city? The image of myself as an eternal wanderer came into my mind in all of its monstrous absurdity. I was deeply frightened because of all the uncertainties that accompanied this vision. It made me feel weak. Here I was, just becoming a person, learning to be sure about certain things in my life, and now I was plunged back into confusion. I did not know how to effectively object to a recommendation by the council, and I knew better than to even try. So, the part of myself that knew I had to obey overcame the part of me that revolted. I could not even think of my future in any detail. My life had suddenly become bleak, like a dark, bottomless hole into which I had inadvertently wandered. Seeing my distress, my father said, I know how you feel, and I would not want to be in your place. But your own grandfather told you, when you were very young, that you would have to go and live in the white world, and I think your fate is pursuing you. Since you came back from the initiation camp, I have consulted, diviner after diviner. This has been at the center of every finding about you. You survived initiation in order to help us survive. We can't survive if you stay here. But how am I going to survive so that you can survive? Just go away. The ancestors will tell you what to do. They will provide. We sat quietly, facing each other in the dark. For a long time we said nothing, needing time to let everything soak in. I was tired, tired in my soul, tired with the kind of exhaustion that cannot be named. But I knew what my father meant. I knew what the council meant. I will never have a home. home for a divination session and a ritual. It was clear to us that what was happening to me was something beyond what anyone could handle on his own. 
My frustration was not directed at anybody in particular, only toward the formless fate that had singled me out to be different when all I wanted to do was stay here and be part of my tribe. Guiso had been my mentor since my return from the seminary. With him, I had learned to trust what I remembered by working closely with him. I used to spend whole days sitting next to him while he divined for others, explaining what had gone wrong in their lives and warning them of what would happen if certain matters were not paid attention to. He refused to answer questions from me on the ground that I already knew the answers. He would simply urge me to look at the instruments of divination more carefully. After a year, I could see the basic patterns of the divination book, though I still had difficulties. I knew what it signified to have a mentor. The mentor shares the same world as the mentored, and therefore neither really knows more than the other. Even though he was older and knew more from experience, Guiso did not want to allow me to fall into the illusion that I was his student. At first it was annoying since I wanted a teacher and he wanted a colleague, but when I overcame this need, he became more vocal and we talked more to each other as he worked on people. He attached value to my suggestions and even began to ask for them. I volunteered information instinctively. Sometimes he would even let me talk to the person involved. Without a mentor, a young man is a disempowered knower. So it was natural that my father should bring me to Guiso to help me cope with the distressing news we had received from the Council of Elders. After a brief consultation with his medicine objects, Guiso said to me, Go and let yourself be swallowed. Your ancestors will do the rest. Though I knew he, as my uncle, meant to bring me comfort with these words, I also knew that he had no personal experience of what the world outside of tribal boundaries was like. These well-meaning words brought me no comfort. Instead, my thoughts kept going around and around. I had just arrived in the village. I had fought to belong here. My painful and difficult initiation had helped me immensely. Now, just as I was on the point of being accepted, I was being gently but, but inexorably expelled. Not heeding my silent protest, Guiso continued, The challenge of a man is to act in accordance with what he remembers. You are not as young as you think you are. In you I see an elder, weighed down by the energy of his ancestors, and knowing that, fate is asking him to live as a man who remembers. You cannot be who you truly are until you can put what you remember into action in your life. My heart was pounding hard against the walls of my chest as he pronounced these words. Each of them felt like a heavy stone falling into my ears and traversing down into my belly where truth resides. Perhaps I expected some sort of last-minute reprieve. Guiso looked into his medicine for a long time, then continued, 
you don't search for something you already have. It's like the story of the man who spent the whole day looking for his machete while it hung on his shoulder. Had he not felt thirsty and gone to a creek where the machete fell off as he bent down to drink, how much longer would he have spent looking for the damn thing? I tell you, this man had a sick memory. You can't wait until the knowledge you already have about your destiny falls off your back. That takes too long. You must remember. Remembering means submitting to your fate. Once you have obeyed, the ancestors will be able to intervene in all the good ways they can. That includes helping you with all the things you cannot know about until you have allowed yourself to be swallowed into the wilderness. The spirit of the land of this tribe has always been with you. Remember, you are an orphan who was recovered to his nest. Several seasons ago, when you escaped from the white man and came back to us, our ancestors had already predicted your return to the healers. The ancestors arranged the things that happened to you when you were a child, and they helped you survive these experiences. They helped you come back from your initiation ordeal they will ensure that you survive in the white man's wilderness as well. You are not going there for the adventure. You are under orders as an initiated man. Why be anxious? After all, they have done for you. Do you still not have enough trust in your own ancestors? Your fear comes from the fact that you are still conditioned by your experiences as a child in the white man's world. This time, you are going there as a prepared adult, an initiated man, journeying with the ancestors. Your worries are human worries, not spirit-induced ones. Having made his point, he asked me to pour my medicine into his. He wanted to show me yet more evidence that I should shake off the yoke of my unfounded concerns. I removed my medicine bag from around my neck and poured its contents into Griso's medicine circle. Griso looked intently. I followed him closely. He asked, Do you see what I see? Yes, I saw that what he said was true. When I finally left for Oakodago, the capital city. It was with the conviction that the support coming from the elders and the ancestors was genuine. How did I let myself be convinced? I will never be able to explain. There are certain things that just carry you away. I think I went because I had finally stopped arguing. And maybe I was a little afraid of the consequences of ignoring the elders' recommendation. Because of the Jesuits, I was already in conflict with the white world. Could I also afford to oppose the indigenous one? Elders and mentors have an irreplaceable function in the life of any community. Without them, the young are lost. 
their overflowing energies wasted in useless pursuits. The old must live in the young like a grounding force that tames the tendency towards bold but senseless actions and shows them the path of wisdom. In the absence of elders, the impetuosity of youth becomes the slow death of the community, which is exactly what Griso had shown me by the way in which he worked with me. I decided that the best thing for me to do in the city was to attend a four-year college. I was lucky because school was only about 12 hours away from the village by motorbike. I loved the commute and rode home whenever I could. My father and Guiso continued to be my principal teachers in the ancestral ways, silently competing with the modern education I was receiving. It was a great irony that I, a college student, continued to be more interested in what was going on in the minds of my elders than in the ideas propagated in the university classrooms. Was it because the more I grasped of the modern world, the more the traditional cried out to be known? On the other hand, there was a reciprocity. I felt at times that understanding of one contributed to the comprehension of the other. I still often suffered from being a man of two worlds, conflicting worlds, that when combined could elevate me to a plane of perception from which I often saw situations through two different points of view, neither of which ever seemed to quite match up with the other. At times, that double perspective landed me in bizarre and uncomfortable situations. It sealed me off from my fellow students who were all trying desperately to become non-traditional people. How often I grieved to hear unjust and ignorant comments aimed at village life. The students hated the ways of the village and displayed scorn and revulsion toward anything that did not come out of books. The logic of the school totally contradicted village knowledge and they carefully nurtured their feelings. There, in the city at the college, the book had replaced the elder because the two worlds could not be brought into harmony and indeed I had the feeling that it never occurred to any of the students but myself to even try to live in both of them. Most of the young men and women were confused. They were neither westernized nor traditionalized. My enduring passion for magic, rituals, and ceremonies reassured me that the traditional world had swallowed me and that I was resisting the white world. Or maybe I had grown to be a man trapped between the white and the traditional worlds. Because I was alone in my efforts, I had no basis by which to explain to anyone the kind of world I was living in. After four years of hard work, I was rewarded with three bachelor degrees, a free airline ticket, and a scholarship at the Sorbonne. For me, going to France was to allow myself to be swallowed deeper. While getting ready to leave, I kept hearing Guiso's voice repeating the old admonition, go and allow yourself to be swallowed. By now, I could have faith in his word. 
The elders do not see the details. They see the overall picture. If the overall pattern is good, the hardship of the details does not matter. Somehow I felt I was not traveling alone. Guiso was with me, as was the spirit of my grandfather Bakai, and behind them was the weight of grandfather's vision. I was finally living out the destiny foretold by my name, Malidoma. He who makes friends with this stranger slash enemy, an entire culture was going abroad to be swallowed.